here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Rob McCarron. Should we begin with the puking or should we begin with the topics that will change the face of WWE forever? Jeff Hawkins. We are not here to talk about Curtis Hughes. You're listening to Shake Them Ropes with Rob McCarron and Jeff Hawkins. Nobody's listening for hockey talk. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean Rob wants to do a run-in? He did a run-in on Fightful. All right, whatever. Hello, everybody. Rob McCarron here. That's right. I've returned to shake them ropes after my one-week apps, and I'm basically CM Punk after the pipe bomb promo. You take a little bit of time off, a few extra days. Everyone thinks it's the entire summer. No, I'm back. Hello. Welcome. I just had to return to make mention of this one thing. We are coming up on WWE SummerSlam at Barclays Center, not Staples Center, as I first uh, I was scouring the website to find an advertisement to see if Brock Lesnar was still being advertised or was being advertised at all for SummerSlam. And little old me thought that SummerSlam was happening at Staples Center, Los Angeles. Not the case anymore. Barclays. Probably what it's been like that for what, three years? Who remembers this stuff? Certainly not I, my my wonderful memory and all. Uh, But Brock Lesnar, at this point, does not appear to be booked, appearing, wrestling, whatever the case may be, at SummerSlam this year. Last week on Raw, the last few weeks on Raw, we've had a multi-man main event match added to Extreme Rules and then changed, and now it's just Roman Reigns and Bobby Lashley. No number one contendership on the line because of Brock Lesnar contractual obligations, contractually not wanting to defend his title. Of course not, why not? SummerSlam appears to be Brock Lesnar-less. We were very likely headed to, what, a Roman Reigns match at SummerSlam? Possibly a Bobby Lashley match at SummerSlam. I don't really see anyone else getting that uh, Brock Lesnar slot. But at this point, we've had the two WrestleManias now with Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns not getting the job done with Brock Lesnar. Is Roman still going to be the one eventually to beat Brock Lesnar? Is that what Vince's big plan is? We just keep pushing it out, pushing it out until the time is right? Is that what your idea is? Or is someone else going to be getting... The Brock Lesnar rub, if you will. Will Bobby Lashley have his Brock Lesnar match? Is Roman Reigns getting another spot? I've been saying it for weeks on this show that you should be building up somebody to eventually get the Brock Lesnar win. Well, now not only should you still be building up somebody for that win, but it shouldn't be eventually. It should be soon. It should be the next Brock Lesnar match you can get out of him. Brock Lesnar should not be the WWE champion. Start the push for Drew McIntyre. Let's get Drew McIntyre. He's involved kind of in this more main event storyline right now with Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins. Get Drew McIntyre ready. Have someone who's going to be around for a while who's a fresh young talent. Young. Drew McIntyre's what? 33? I have no idea. But get Drew McIntyre ready. Get somebody ready. And let's not do the Brock Lesnar wins a few matches and then he finally loses the title at WrestleMania. Get it off of him right now. 
whether it's for hijacking purposes. Not, don't let Brock Lesnar and his contract hijack what you guys plan and what you guys do in your top main event slots. Whether it's for house show purposes, have the WWE Championship, the Universal Championship on the live events. Have the WWE Universal Championship on TV. Make the Universal Championship something that people want instead of something that people only want when it's around. You should be looking for it all the time. And then also just for Brock Lesnar's sake. At this point, Brock Lesnar might be more valuable to you as a special attraction match, sure. But that doesn't mean you have to be the champion. Let him come in and have special attraction matches. Matches that people want to see, not matches that people are dreading because he might walk away as the champion. But get somebody ready. Have Brock Lesnar lose that championship the moment you can get him out there. Because it looks like it's not going to be on SummerSlam. It looks like he... And what are you going to do? Have AJ Styles defend the title against someone random in the main event? Have Ronda Rousey going for the women's championship in the main event? That would actually be kind of cool. Or have Roman Reigns in the main event for nothing. A number one contendership match because that's all Roman Reigns can do right now. Because there's no championship for him. If Brock Lesnar was indeed going to lose that championship at WrestleMania and you switched it because of whether it was the reaction to Roman or whether you just wanted it to happen later on at the uh, at the greatest Royal Rumble event, then that plan was changed. Whatever the case may be, stop changing the plan. Stick with something, but that plan needs to include no Brock Lesnar in the title scene. Guys, did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by the age of 25? This does not have to be a problem for you with hymns. How will you feel a year from now when it's business as usual up there? Pretty good, right? Well, you can get there with Hims. Hims is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and yes, even sexual wellness. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits. It's so easy to find what's right for you by going to 4 When you order now, our listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 right now while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost you hundreds if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy. Go to forhims.com slash str right now. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash str. Forhims.com slash str right now for your five dollars off. While supplies last, forhims.com slash str. We'll be back next week with my little quick preview of WWE Extreme Rules featuring yes. Roman Reigns versus Bobby Lashley in your main event. Oh, and there's some other matches, too. We'll talk about them next week. Back to Jeff on Shake Them Ropes. Shake Them Ropes, episode 274. Hi, I'm Jeff Hawkins. I'm writing solo. I was originally going to have my friend Brian O'Connell help co-host. This is Los Angeles. Things happen. They happen very quick. And he was unable to be with me when I could record. Um, Speaking of which couple of uh, house cleaning things before we get into it. Thank you very much for the kind words uh, about my last Fightful show. Um, at least for now. I can't do the weekly SmackDown, you know, breakdown because I will be working a 9-to-5 job and they need somebody who can go live afterwards. Um, that said, that also changes the scheduled recording of this show because I used to have afternoons free midweek. Pretty easy time, especially if you had guests on the East Coast. You know, I could record at 5, they could record at 8, we'd all be good. This, from now on, I think this uh, this will probably drop sometime over the weekend. And that means I'm going to be competing with the flagship. I realize that. Um, stick with me. 
please, if you still like me. If you don't, you know what? Great. There are other podcasts. I, you know, I'm still going to keep this going uh, as long as I can, as long as time will allow. But the set schedule may have to go out the window. Um, but I will do my best. That That's all I can ask for. Um, also, we'll ask for a little bit of patience while I learn how to actually produce a show. Because as Rob kind of dropped out, he was the one who did all the engineering and all the sound cleanup. Sometimes it may not sound as clean as you may like or may be used to. Be nice when you criticize it, please. <laughs> um, and uh, and we'll go on from here. But it's a new day, it's a new dawn, it's a new Shake Them Ropes. That said, this week, I'll go over the high points of WWE. There's no use in me breaking it down point by point by point because everybody else has kind of done it by now. It's the end of the week. We're almost to the new week. We're on the way to Extreme Rules. Um, in addition, go watch a little old NWA and view it through modern eyes, modern critique. Uh, I'm not going to overly fanboy on it, but on the other hand, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. There's a lot of stuff we can learn from it. There's a lot of stuff that parallels today's wrestling. So we're going to watch June 23rd, 1984, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling on the Network. Going to break that down. Let's get to it. So uh, breaking news, as, as I was about to record, is that uh, police have come out with a statement in uh, Phoenix that Enzo did not know about the investigation into the alleged rape charges. Uh, the controversy here is that WWE did not believe him uh, at the time when they decided to fire him, they said that uh, they thought they, he was holding out or that he knew somehow, and police have s- seemingly, I, I, I use that term um, very liberally right now, because I, I, you, know, you can never really know if someone knew or not, but they say he did not know that he was being investigated. And I have no problem with WWE firing Enzo. I don't. I do feel kind of bad for him, though, because, look, as much of a jerk as he was possibly behind the scenes, he still kind of got railroaded here. And, you know, it's hard to pick a side here because WWE, this is what they do. They use you for as long as you're useful. And if you go against the corporate image, you're out of there at the same time. You know, he was found innocent. Doesn't mean you have a right to a job. Doesn't mean you're a good person. Probably why you should just, you know, be kind. Be nice to people behind the scenes. Don't get a diva attitude. I say that without a pun being implied. So it's it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a tragedy. But on the other hand, 205 is much better without him. You watched this week that new DQ match between Buddy Murphy and Mustafa Ali. Pretty fantastic stuff. Not not a great no DQ match, but still a great match, I thought. And they're wearing out their welcome a bit, I think, with this feud. I really love it. I think it's a vastly underrated feud. I was on Wrestling Omokaze this past week talking about the best feuds. And this one, I realized I may have slighted by forgetting about it. Because it's on a show that, <laughs> look, they're, these two guys are out there giving their all. 
and you have these dummies chanting, we want tables. What are you doing? These guys are killing themselves out here doing, you know, tequila sunrises off of, you know, with tables that don't break. They're doing superplexes off of vertical stairs. And you guys are chanting about tables. Stop it. Now, the good news is it looks like they're going to try and make 205 a touring brand. The bad news is they're going to try and make 205 Live a touring brand. Because if you're not the main brand, it's going to be hard to draw. Now, could they do something like NXT where you're trying to draw smaller arenas? You may want to even draw even smaller arenas than NXT was at first. Like the Hollywood Palladium, which is where NXT's first house show in Hollywood was, no slouch of a, of a venue. Um... And I don't know, because WWE never wants to come off as low rent. Do they, I mean, are you going to book 205 Live in a, an American Legion Hall in Southgate? Which seems to be the big hub hub for independent wrestling in Southern California these days? No, probably not. You're going to want the full-size arena. But you can't even get people to stay in your moderate arenas after SmackDown to watch 205 Live. So where's the money in this? And WWE wants first-class production. They don't want to run it like a grimy indie show. So I, I I understand that they want to make 205 a touring brand. But I still think you take these properties that are middling monetarily at best and you combine them to make one super profitable brand like an NXT, which still has goodwill amongst your, the fan base you want to like 205 Live, and maybe you co-promote co those shows. And you get a bigger building like a Riverside Coliseum out here, or the Ontario, whatever the Ontario venue is. And you can do a fairly good house out here. But I mean, NXT's no great touring brand. It, it's good for... You know, they, they put the top guys on there. But at the same time, everybody's basically waiting for takeovers. It's not a live draw, per se. This is a pure television product where it's like, come out and see a house show that gives two-thirds of an effort. And for the very dedicated, that's fine for them. For more discriminating consumers, they know that the important stuff only happens on TV. So maybe you do a title change on an NXT house show and then that gets people thinking maybe they need to go to house shows. I don't know. I don't know what to do about 205 Live because the ever since Enzo left, it's been such a hot property in terms of in-ring action. And at least half the show is, is very, very good. You know, you still get your Lucha House Party with the party favors, which is just annoying. And they still only really build one or two stories at, at a time, but it's a great brand. And speaking of which, Leo Rush in his second week. You know, I thought the promo wasn't bad. There's just something. Maybe you guys can help me out with this. It, it, it feels like I'm watching a child try and cut a man's promo at times. And that's not to diss Leo Rush. Because I think, I think he almost has his character down. But there's something about his cadence and maybe his tonality and his voice 
where his voice is a little too high to carry the kind of character he's trying to play here. Or maybe it's his stature and the clothes he's wearing. Because he should be coming out in the white suit. He should basically be Kona Reeves. He, I mean, really, he should be, you know, the white linen suit that he was wearing in his vignettes, the gold chain. You know, wearing, you know, I understand he's wearing clothes that fit his age and his demographic and somewhat his character. But at the same time, you know, it makes him come off a little bit too young, a little bit less serious, I think. But I'm interested in this uh, Tazawa-Leo Rush feud. I think that's going to be a good one. Raw Raw was heavy on Roman, which (laughs) Roman is possibly the worst written babyface in the history of television. I don't know. Maybe not. You know, Scrappy-Doo wasn't any good either. But there needs to be someone in that writer's room, and, and it's going to be interesting because i'm going to tie this into a couple other feuds who needs to ask the question why why is this important why is he doing this why this why that and there's not enough of that to maintain how do i put this uh stability of motive for this character because the problem earlier and we, we pointed this out about two years ago when they were really pushing hard for roman maybe even three is that they didn't know what kind of archetype archetypal baby face to make Roman reigns. One week he was the cold, silent, you know, strong, silent type Gary Cooper. The next week he'd be a ladies man. The next week they, they'd focus on his daughter. The next week he'd, he'd be badass stone cold Roman reigns. They, they, they've really kind of run the gamut on this. And right now, his motivation is to be the face of the company, to be the face of Raw. And he wants Brock Lesnar to win the title so he can be the face of Raw. Not to win the title necessarily, but just because he hasn't beaten Brock Lesnar yet, which is very odd. I mean, there is a, there's a feud to be had here with him and Lashley. I think, and I think you bring in the generational thing. I think that's a great idea. But at the same time, they're not, they're kind of talking over each other's heads when they're doing this. Well, I was the baby, or I was the face of the company before, and then you left, and then this, and then that. It's like, ah, these aren't things people would actually say to each other. You, you tell them you're a quitter, and you ran away to go be a B-level mixed martial art fighter. You know, bring in the Trump heat. Why not? do that you know make it you know if you can turn off half your audience sure but you know it's still heat in some ways and you know what it's funny that might be the thing that got roman reigns over is if he invoked bobby lashley's attachment to trump (laughs) in our political environment it would be the biggest stroke of irony you could have but this whole story it Everything Bobby Lashley says rings false. Everything Roman Reigns says rings false. The Revival getting DQ'd when they have a two-on-one advantage and not being smart enough to see that they had a two-on-one advantage rings false. Because we can't have baby faces who are, or heels who are competent. <laughs> Except for one guy, the badass heel. 
Everybody else are bumbling morons. I mean, I don't mind moronic heels. They make for a great supplement to a roster. Heels are supposed to get beat up. I get that. But at the same time, if your team is not smart enough with a two-on-one advantage to to not get disqualified, why why would we think you had the competency to have a game plan to win the World Tag Team Championships? And you may go, well, people don't think about that. Well, they may not actively think about that, but in the back of their mind, they remember things. And it's it's just weird that way. It's like, God, can, can we get... You know, mid-card baby faces are stupid, and mid-card heels are dumb. It, it's it's ridiculous in some ways, because now you can never heat anybody up unless you make them smart again, and then they never make them smart again. It's just... It's it's mind-boggling at times. Braun Strowman has lost it, in my opinion. This is this is another thing about writers, and I'm not dissing the creative team here. I'm dissing the main guy here. In terms of writing, you get an idea for a sketch, and this happens to every twenty-something kid who takes a sketch class at either Second City or the Groundlings or whatever. There's always, you get in the group dynamics, and especially if you're not in the powerful clique within that group, there's always a sketch pitch that everybody loves, but it's based around one joke. And then they don't know how to write the sketch around it. They just want to do the one gag. They have this idea for a gag, and then... And then it's like, well we'll, well, we'll we'll come up with some convoluted way to get there. As opposed to thinking about, again, asking why, asking about what's the next logical step here you know, between Kevin Owens and Braun Strowman, and then finding a solution for that that would involve humor. I don't mind him dragging a toilet around. I just think it's not good for Braun's character, quite frankly. I think he should be killing people. But that's not entertaining enough. It's not lighthearted enough. It, it's not, you know... I mean, when we all saw, saw Chekhov's porta potty you know, prominently center screen, did anybody... I mean, we were all ahead of the joke before anybody. And that's... That's death in comedy. If, if people find the punchline before you get there, it better be a hell of a joke. And now some people thought it was. Some people love that kind of stuff. Oh, man, do you remember when he did the porta potty That's Vince's audience, and that's fine. But don't come here and tell me it's great writing either. That That's the hard part for me. Because I think Braun, they're just finding wacky comedy. <laughs> they're like sitcom log lines. Braun Strowman steals Kevin Owens' car again. Hilarity ensues. This tonight at 8.30 on NBC. You're you're finding wacky situations for them to get into instead of finding natural, natural situations in which to find humor, and that that's always kind of been WWE style. They love the camp, they love campiness, they don't love serious wrestling feuds except you know once in a while, and then everybody gets buzzed about, it and then then they just drop it because you know that's too much wrestling. That's not the product we want, you know. Triple H gets the gets the serious feuds, you know, not not Kevin Owens. 
Yeah. It's it's just I don't know. I watched this raw and I, and, and now you get to both Finn Balor and Bra- and I'm oh, sorry, Baron Corbin and the Bailey Sasha stuff. And you look, I read a tweet today and they go, "Man, you should really be paying attention to this social media feud. They're both great." Okay. But what if I don't have time to view all of their social media stuff? Why isn't this great feud on TV? Why am I building a sketch around Dr. Shelby getting angry again, which is the that's the punchline is that the happy-go-lucky friendship counselor all of a sudden can't deal with the two battling former friends and then he loses it and he he gets driven crazy. Okay, we've seen that before. What's new about this? Why are we watching this right now? Why, Why have we gone back on... Why would Bailey be here like this when she was cheered for beating up Sasha and why aren't they bringing that up? You know, where's the continuity here? And it's, again, it's a sketch with a joke as the premise, and they're trying to figure out a way to get there. And it wasn't earned, and so it became bad. And, yeah, this sketch is pretty bad. I mean, look, I'm still interested in the performers. I think the social media stuff is great. But this is a television product. Social media stuff is supplemental. Okay, it supplements the product. The WWE.com supplements. It shouldn't be the stuff that draws attention from people like me. And I've been saying this for a while, is that all the stuff, great stuff is on the website or it's in their social media. It also says that some of these performers have better instincts than the guy on top in some ways because they're taking initiative, even though it may not be rewarded, see Zack Ryder, but they have good instincts. I mean, when, when NXT was nothing but an art school project, it seemed, everybody there knew how to make short films. Everybody there knew how to do social media really well. And as their social media has exploded, corporate comes in and says, okay, we need to lay some ground rules, we need to do this. You know, you really need to push this aspect of your character, et cetera, et cetera. And they, it really kind of took some of the fun out of it. Well, it looks like the fun's back. The problem is the fun's in the wrong place. You know, they should be talking this kind of smack on TV between Corbin and Balor. They should be doing these sick burns and bringing up history and pictures and whatnot on the actual show. And then and then you can have, you know, then you figure that out, and then you figure out a way to then eventually get Dr. Shelby to explode. But this also brings up my major problem with SmackDown this week. Which was a pretty good show, I thought. I thought SmackDown overall was a better show than Raw. Uh, and But Raw's flaw was, you know, you have a protagonist that not everybody's terribly interested in and an antagonist who is really the protagonist. It's very, very weird. It, it's two babyfaces. And you can build babyface versus babyface, but you gotta have them go at each other as opposed to this this convoluted, I have the skills to take on Brock Lesnar. Okay. (laughs) You know, you're alluding to stuff that you never bring up because you don't want MMA to shade your product. You never really go at each other because you don't want to end up undercutting the other guy. 
but maybe, you know, maybe take the gloves off. Let these two, let these two really, you know, what would happen if they both got live mics and they got to talk to each other in character as they really feel? Because I want to feel, I want Roman Reigns and, and Bobby Lashley to be a good match or at least a good feud. And it ain't getting there. It's just two guys that have great bodies and great physiques and were main eventers at one time talking about how they were main eventers. Which is okay. But the animus here is is more, I want to be Vince's favorite versus I want to be the champ. And that that's a bit of a problem. But anyways, as I was talking about, Dr. Shelby, problem with WWE nostalgia... And there's nothing wrong with nostalgia in wrestling. It's been a major force in wrestling for a long, long time. Heck, heck, part of this show's appeal is the fact that I'm very nostalgic for the wrestling of my youth. But WWE nostalgia is slightly different. Because when they bring back an act, or they bring back a gimmick, it's kind of like the problem that classic rock bands had for years going on tour. They want to present that new material. But the crowds just want to hear them play the hits. Slightly changed. WWE, they never progress their characters. Because they just want, because they think people just want to see the hits. And so it's rare that you get something like, I mean, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming to get Matt Hardy to be woken Matt, pretty much. Because Jeff Hardy is doing Jeff Hardy from the mid-2000s right now. He's doing all the same moves, all the same spots, all the things you loved and remembered about Jeff Hardy. And he's not wrestling a different style. Because if you admit age, Vince has no use for you. The Dudley Boys were doing the exact same thing as the Dudley Boys always did in WWE when they came back. Rob Van Dam, 10 years after he should be doing, you know, somersaults and topes. Topes, sorry. Um, you know, and, and Van Terminators. You know, he's lost a little on his fastball. So he's become a, a, a Rob Van Dam tribute act. Chris Jericho, same thing. Team Hell No. Team Hell No had to replay every single beat of their feud in one night. And I'm glad they got through it and got it over with. You know, oh, Daniel Bryan doesn't trust Kane. Now they're fighting. Now they're remembering, bickering, and bringing stuff up. I was afraid they were going to do the, can Daniel Bryan trust Kane at this point? I was deathly afraid of that. That said, the Usos brought this to another level. The Usos have been underrated as a tag team this year for the work they've been doing because WWE does tag team feuds poorly but the Usos carried a certain amount of heft in this thing you really believed they were kind of miffed at Team Hell No getting a shot here and I think the match was quite good although Kane only does Kane things now and he doesn't do too much and there's nothing... I mean, he's, he's, God, he's 50, for God's sakes, people. Why, why is he taking dives from the outside from the Usos? Well, because that's what people pay to see. Okay. But I, I thought the ending was clever. I thought, the, I thought the choke spot was clever. And then, you know, the, the hug, and I mean, the, the, the tease at bickering. 
again into the cheers. Okay, fine. We got it over with. Thank God. We have one week to now build a feud with uh, with the Bludgeon Brothers, with Daniel Bryan being stuck in the mid card when everybody wants him to be a main eventer because I think WWE now thinks he's leaving. So they're just going to burn the contract and burn the dates. And I guess that's their prerogative. But at the same time, it's just like, hey, remember Hell No? Man, it's member berries. It's member berries as wrestling. And, you know, you, it, it's so weird because I remember watching things like Slamboree, WCW Slamboree in 94 and 95, and you'd see these old guys and you liked them, but you notice they've changed their style at least to wrestle and they don't wrestle as well as they used to. But you're still happy to have them there. Here... They do everything the exact same, and you notice they don't have the same stuff that they used to. I can't believe it's been five years since Team Hell No. It's like it's like things never evolve. For characters, it's like you get this gimmick, and that's your gimmick, and then unless it's a drastic change away, a 180, you never get to, as a character, as an artist, as an actor get to explore anything about that character because now you've become branded and now people want to see your signature spots here and there. You know, they, they want to clap along. They want to sing along. They want to do these things. And if and there's this fear that if you change that, that the audience will, won't go along with you. And I, I'm just... It, it's why WWE annoys me on so many levels these days. It's... It's somewhat disheartening in a way, but um, that said, the unrepentant stupidity of Asuka and Ellsworth was fantastic. I don't... It was exactly what it needed to be. I wouldn't have minded Ellsworth running back in before the 10 count to make Asuka even angrier, because angry Asuka is compelling Asuka for me. Kind of sexy, too, but compelling. You know, Ellsworth just... This is flakiness at its best. And this is what wrestling needs some of. Everybody doesn't have to be this way. But chauvinistic, Bobby Riggs, my God, they're playing this into the battle of the sexes, which is so, such pretentiousness out of WWE, but it just adds to the level of insanity, how insanely stupid this feud is, which is great in its own right. But at the same time, you know there's someone in there go- thinking that the Bobby Riggs, Billy Jean King thing was real and not Bobby Riggs throwing a match to pay off gambling debts at the same time. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, Billy Jean King didn't really beat Bobby Riggs in many people's opinion. I, I'm one of them. Um, you know, I... I <laughs> you know, saying that this is like forward thinking in any ways is, is just... It's a little too pretentious to to be taken seriously, and yet you think they do at times. They think this is helping. Help, this is helping forward the cause of women. If Oscar beats James Ellsworth, nah, it's just a badass woman beating up a geek, which is fine for wrestling. Love me some of that. Give me Ellsworth versus Yano, please. And then Sanity got its heat back versus the New Day. Um, liked the segment, thought it was a nice touch for Alexander Wolf to pick up a pancake during the thing and eat it while he was beating guys up. The danger here 
is this this notion that okay they come in they beat you one they beat you up jump you in a non-sanctioned kind of thing one week and the next week you beat them clean and then the next week they have to jump you and cause chaos again to get their heat back you only have so many of these holes on the card to punch you're now at two i'm thinking three at most so if they come back and they beat you know if they do a match like xavier woods versus killian dane or Xavier Woods versus Eric Young, which is kind of the mirror effect, because Eric Young is was basically put here to be the same role as Xavier Woods. And we'll get into that a little bit when we talk NWA, because the Freebirds are on this episode, and Buddy Roberts is, is wrestling on it. Eric Young, Xavier Woods were the guys, you, supposedly, who were quote-unquote disposable in the act. The guys you could beat. So we'll see what they do with Sanity. I still think... I still think they should have done a slow build, have them lose in a tag team title match, and then eventually win the tag titles when Nikki Cross interferes. I thought Rob's idea there was quite good, and they should have gone with that. NXT, of interest to me at least. Um, some, someone needs to tell me Vanessa Bourne's gimmick, because all I can think of is Hooker, and I know that's degrading, but you look at her in the lingerie, it screams hooker to me. Don't know why, but uh, Bianca Belair is is the woman to take the title off of Shayna Baszler. Kyrie Sane doesn't need the title. Put her in one more match, send her up to the main card. Have her be adorable and a pirate up there. Because I don't think it does any good to put the NXT title on her. I don't think it does Shayna any good to lose to Kyrie Sane, although it does put a button on the first May Young Classic which might be a motivator. But I think the money here is Shayna against an athlete of of Division One caliber who may not be an MMA star, but has all the athletic tools to have been an MMA star had she entered it. And I think Bianca Belair is that woman. And I think it'd be interesting to see Shayna, even as a heel, have to work from underneath because I think Bianca is going to be naturally baby-faced if it is a heel-versus-heel feud. Might be wrong on that, but I think that's where the chase should be. But I think they're going to go conventional here. And I think it's either going to be Kyrie and Candice LeRae who eventually get a one-on-one with Shayna Baszler. And Candice is interesting because it ties into the Gargano storyline. I, you know... I, I think Candice, you know, six years ago would have been a superstar on this roster. I think right now she's good on the upper tier of NXT, but I, I don't see them grooming her for anything. So maybe maybe giving her the title here would be a great consolation prize. I don't know. And then we have to talk about this Mighty versus Heavy Machinery match. Or should I say the Mighty versus Otis Dozovich, the greatest man to ever live match. Now, during the greatest Royal Rumble ever, they brought Tucker Knight over because he was tall and he was big and he could help run drills with trainees from Saudi Arabia. And while he was gone, the masterful team of Montez Ford and Otis Dozovich, a.k.a. Street Machinery, a.k.a. Heavy Profits, debuted. This is the team to make, kids. Because 
Otis Dozovich is a fantastic act. My problem with Otis Dozovich, pardon me, my problem with Otis Dozovich is that he's too hard on the comedy, too hard on the sports entertainment. This guy should be killing dudes like Vader. He should be a brawler. This heavy machinery team should be badasses. And they're clowns. And this is the difference between sports entertainment and professional wrestling. I understand that. But on NXT, let them be wrestlers. You can sports entertainment them up on the main roster because you don't care about tag teams. And I'll still be complaining because that's... Because WWE does not take care of tag teams. They, they, they try and find entertaining gimmicks for them and make them a part of the show. Otis Dozovich doing the worm... I don't want to see that. I want to see him doing moonsaults on guys. I want to see him beating clubbering dudes. And plus, the worm is Scotty Tuhati's move. I get it that it's funny to watch a fat guy do the worm. I get that. But that elbow he was doing, which looked weird the first time, far more compelling than doing somebody else's move, just to kind of mock the fat guy rather than to, you know, be impressed with his toughness, which I think is something you need to get back with heavy machinery now that they've... You know, they've had a few losses, and they need to be taken seriously again. All you got to do to serious a comedy team up is put a little bit more viciousness in them. And that's the thing that's always been missing from guys is, and that's what makes them compelling, is that goof that you saw, that mid-card geek, when he turns it on a little bit, becomes far more compelling as a character. It's like, oh, now we know he has this in him, and now I want to watch him week to week. But it's become kind of a play the hits thing as well. You know, everybody wants to see Otis do the worm. You know, come come see the unicorn. Come see Gunther Gable Williams. Come see the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, I maybe I'm wrong on this. I understand that it's popular. I understand it might pop Vince, which, you know, if if you believe Rob. You know, that, that means that, that Hunter can let these two go because he doesn't really want them. I don't know if I believe that necessarily. But you're you're still trying to build the AOP here up on the main roster, and they got to win over a team that they had, they had to sell for Titus Worldwide, which is nuts in some ways. These are guys who should be killing guys week after week. Not a week-to-week feud where you give a little bit. You, you, you make them killers until they get to the tag team titles, and then they sell. That's when they sell is when they set the sell against the best, not against mid-card teams. So, I mean, but the Mighty's getting a good little heel run here, uh, being kind of tricksters, although they've lost all the personality they had in the uh, vignettes with Harley Race. So it's so you know it's not like NXT doesn't have its issues with tag team wrestling as well, because right now the only really compelling tag team on the roster is, well, I mean Mustache Mountain is somewhat compelling, but the the uh, shoot I can't even remember their names anymore. The the uh, I want to call them the Attitude Era, but that's not it. What is it? How do I forget that mid sentence in the middle of a rant? I'm Everybody's now screaming at me. It's Kyle O'Reilly and Adam Page. You should know them. Why not? Undisputed error. Thank you. Jesus. I'm such an idiot sometimes. Anyways, 
it's my view of WWE this week. The uh, Extreme Rules card is next week. I'll be previewing that, hopefully, with somebody. Maybe with Brian, if he gets time. I don't know. He, his weekends tend to be booked. Loving the theme song for this Extreme Rules, though. I haven't had this much like for a theme song for a WWE event since uh, since the Mae Young Classic with uh, Dorothy and Missile. I thought that was a really good song and really fit well. I think this one is kind of cool as well. Going to come back, going to talk a little uh, NWA from 1984. Just a moment. Shake Them Ropes 274. You can follow the show at Shake Them Ropes. It's usually just a show feed. I think I'm going to be taking over the account. May post all my pithy wrestling thoughts there. You can follow me personally. All the sexy at Crap Game 13 you want. Come and get it. Going to do something a little different for the second half of the show this week. Going to start watching some shows on the network that maybe I wasn't privy to, perhaps. Maybe I haven't watched in a long time. Maybe they're just of interest to me and I just want to watch them. This week, watching Mid-Atlantic Wrestling from June 23rd, 1984. 1984 is the year that I started really becoming interested in wrestling. I won't say I was a full-blown fan until I was in 1985. But one of the first things I remember is one of the feuds that starts to really get going this week. It had been teased in other weeks. Um, The problem with my linear timeline is that during this period, Jim Crockett Promotions was running two different shows. They were running Worldwide Wrestling, and they were running... Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling in syndication up and down the area where I lived. I did not have cable at the time. So you would have angles that would, you know, call back to two weeks ago on Worldwide, on Mid-Atlantic, and vice versa. They were very incestual. It was the same talent rosters on both, usually taped in the same city. And they would refer to things on the other show, and maybe you haven't seen it yet because of syndication. Not everything was instant. These tapes were still being mailed by postal service at the time. And sometimes you get lost. But one of the first feuds I remember starting to get interested in, and I've mentioned here on the show before, was Tully Blanchard versus Ric Flair. And this is where the match really starts to heat up. Or not the match, but the feud. Been alluded to for the past few weeks. Let me uh, kind of break down what was happening in wrestling. 1984 is insane. There's a YouTube channel called 1984, A Year of Transition, that's nothing but Crockett clips from this year. I believe those are all worldwide and not Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic was hosted by Bob Cottle. Uh, David Bixon's span can't stand him because he used to work for Senator Jesse Helms, a rather notorious figure in American politics. But Bob Cottle and Lance Russell are kind of the, and Gordon Soley were kind of the, uh, your uncle... Uh, your grandpa type of announcers. Kind of straight ahead, never got terribly emotional, but you know what? They'd shame you if you did wrong, and they'd try and guilt you, but they weren't histrionic. Unlike David Crockett, who hosted Worldwide, and was very emotional and got very emotionally involved in the storylines. 1984 is absolutely an insane year in wrestling, because... As of this date, we are two weeks away from Black Saturday on TBS, which is where Vince McMahon 
bought time on Turner Broadcasting, taking over the Georgia Championship Wrestling slot to air the WWF. 1984 starts out, Crockett is kind of in shatters because Vince McMahon is coming. He's starting his nationwide expansion, and he's starting to pick up talent. He picked up Roddy Piper from Jim Crockett. During the first half of this year, you have the Briscoes in and out. You have Greg Valentine still here, but he's out of here by mid-year. The Junkyard Dog's doing a spell. He's out of here by mid-year. Dick Slater's a big-time heel. He's pretty much here for a while, but he's in and out. Um, 1984... In January, a young man by the name of Tully Blanchard comes in, and he's a babyface for a couple of weeks. We're wrestling dark matches with Wahoo McDaniel against the Assassins, and then he becomes a heel instantly on February, and he's all over this television. He is, he is pretty much picking it up. Ric Flair is out touring. Dusty Rhodes has been rumored to be coming in and pretty much has the book, but he's still kind of running Florida at this point at the same time. All these territories are kind of discombobulated, and they're switching up talent. The Road Warriors come in for some one-shots as heels, if you can imagine that. You know, it's kind of a revolving door, and the, and the mainstay talent on here is kind of dreck when you think about it. You have Ricky Steamboat, who's great. After that, you have... You know, your Jimmy Valiance, your Paul Jones's army, your Rufus R. Jones as your mainstays. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, Ric Flair's, this is the time when Crockett has not yet solidified power. So the NWA champ is still touring. I mean, Ric Flair, if you look at if you go online and look at his touring schedule in 1984, he's in Texas, he's in Missouri, you know, catering to, you know, Fritz and catering to Harley Race and Bob Geigel and the other promoters around. And then he'll come back to Charlotte for a few weeks and have a feud here. And this is about that time he does that. So we open up with Bob Cottle and Ric Flair. And there's a lot of talk on this show. So I, I'm warning you. Th those of you who like the wrestling heavy types of shows, show may not be for you. But this gives like a nice little historical rundown. And what this is right now is it's a June show that's trying to table set for the rest of the year. Um, you don't get a lot of that in wrestling anymore because it's kind of booked week to week here. You know, you'd book two or three weeks of wrestling at a time, and, but you had a plan going in. They were looking towards Starcade at the end of the year. But Ric Flair here is a baby face. Um, soon to be a guy who can pivot between heel and babyface but right now he's he's kind of kind of a purish babyface but he'll have his heelish tendencies um he he's here he's soft-spoken this isn't the styling and profiling rick flair you have this is the time when champions were thought of especially babyface champions they're going to be the well-spoken their faces of the company they're dressed in suits you know, this is the best organization around, which Ric Flair always did, even when he was a heel. You know, this is this is a professional business type sport. He, he's a little Nick Bockwinkle here, if those of you who can reference that a bit, without kind of the smarminess. You know, he's very serious at this time. He puts over the NWA in the territory. And then they cut to a clip of uh, Harley Race and Ric Flair from Starcade the previous year. This is six months ago. 
This is how continuity worked in the territories at this time. Stories would go on for months and years at times, and people would reference things from that as opposed to week to week and then forgetting about it. If you remember Harley and Flair, we did this on Shake Them Ropes 82 on our top 100 list. Um, it wasn't 82 on the top 100 list, but uh, STR episode 82, it's where Ric Flair, Ric Flair and Harley race at Starcade. That's where we go over it. You can find that on the uh, top 100 list on the website over on Voices of Wrestling slash STR. Rob stopped updating around 77 or so. This is the next to last one. So <laughs> and then we come back and it's Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair. Dusty Rhodes is not a regular part of this territory just yet. He's here, but he's kind of hanging around a- as a favor because I think believe he's just gotten the book. Um, within six months and flair and you know they're they're mostly just kind of talking at each other as sportsmen you know they both want the title they know how important it is and and they're setting the table for the starcade match in december but they're both but but neither is a heel at this point they're both kind of baby faces they're both kind of being polite to one another if not begrudging respect you know this is the slow build so to speak and Flair even references his heel past here. He, he goes, I used to not do things the right way. I wanted titles too quickly. But now, you know, now I'm kind of older and wiser, which is hilarious when you think, like, a year from now, he's going to be screaming and gallivanting and cheating all of a sudden. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of funny to watch this at times and go, that's Ric Flair, but you'll see some of the classic Flair later in this episode. Then we go to Flair's Steamboat, which is a babyface, babyface match. But Flair's working as a heel in this match. And Steamboat puts on the figure four, which was something that baby faces would do all the time. I mean, the, the, the era of the finishing move, you know, the setup finishing move thing was really a WWF invention that happened around the mid-80s. For the most part, guys would have their signature moves, but they didn't always need to finish guys with that. You know, it, was, it wasn't as heavily patterned back then. I mean, everybody would use a figure four at one time. Everybody would do suplexes, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it, it's interesting watching this the end of this Steamboat Flare match because the, the whole point is to have the bell ring when he's covering for two, but they count 10 seconds, and Steamboat's not on the top rope yet. And you can tell this is a 10-second countdown that lasts about 20 seconds to get to the point. So, you know... If this were modern day, we'd be calling that out, so we should call that out here, even though it's a different time and place. Um, it, it was meant to anger people, the time limit draw, so that they'd come back and watch. Maybe next time Ric Flair, or maybe next time Ricky Steamboat wins the title. Maybe next time the, we get to see the title change. It was all to not make them go home happy, but to make them want to buy tickets for the next time so that maybe... We get to see the title change in our town. But you'll notice a cool framing of this. During the Harley Flair match in the aftermath, Steamboat's the one putting the belt on Ric Flair. Here, he takes the belt, he winces knowing he had Ric Flair, and he begrudgingly hands Ric Flair the belt here. Now, this isn't paid off in 1984. This isn't paid off until Steamboat comes back from the WWF in 1989 when he's running the uh, 
when he when he's running the angle as as uh, as Eddie Gilbert's tag team partner. Now that wasn't necessarily meant to be. I'm sure they meant to have Steamboat and Flair run an extended feud here, but they eventually pivot to Steamboat and and Blanchard for Starcade, while while foregoing Flair Steamboat to get to Flair and Dusty. So it's just very interesting table setting here. Okay, so we come back. And and Flair's cutting another promo, but this time wrestling as a, is a sport. He's explaining, look, he almost had me with the cross body. Maybe on another night he gets me for three. Not this time. You know, he's trying to kind of baby face after watching the heelishness on, on TV. So it's kind of a cool little thing. And as he's talking about this, then they bring up Tully Blanchard and Ricky Steamboat. Now, Tully Blanchard, as I said, had come into the territory January 1983, really starts healing it up in February, and is all over the place, all over these television things, because he he starts out with a mid-card feud with Johnny Weaver, who is also the color commentator with Bob Cottle on the Mid-Atlantic shows. So they're doing this feud for, for a couple of months, and then it becomes this kind of four-week period where... Tully Blanchard slaps Johnny Weaver in the in the commentary booth. Start that. Then he gets beat up by Ricky Steamboat, and all of a sudden he's getting mouthy towards Ric Flair. So so Tully Blanchard is really the heel carrying this territory in addition to Dick Slater right now. But Tully Blanchard's far more personable, far more charismatic. Um, if if you think about how he got here, it's a little bit amazing because in 1983. Blanchard is in Southwest wrestling Gino Hernandez after the breakup of the awesome twosome there, or the dynamic duo. I can't remember what they call themselves there offhand. He wrestles in Mexico towards the later latter half of the year. He does a one-shot in Memphis against Jerry Lawler, which has a pretty cool promo on YouTube if you can find it. I think I just recently tweeted it out. You know, And he has really nowhere else to go other than to pack his bags and to go to Crockett and saying, hey, I can make you some money. Because in 82, he was basically a jobber to the stars in Mid-South. And he's 29 at this point. So he should be getting into his prime after being in the business for so many years. So he's all over Mid-Atlantic television, kind of being a commentator, being an interviewer. He's television champ, and he's changed the rules from being a 10-minute match to a 20-minute match, but offering $10,000 worth of money if anybody can beat him. I mean, he is just... Mr. Smarmy Ass Heel. And his gimmick is pretty much department store Ric Flair. Ric Flair has the fine tailored clothes still because he is the champ. That's his gimmick. Tully Blanchard, to me, is always the guy who's trying to wear the department store suit but trying to be Ric Flair. And I think that brings such an added, added parlance to his character. This is everything Miz should be. In terms of even the soft style stuff, he should be trying to be, you know, really glitz and glamour as opposed to campy glitz and glamour and not really pulling it off that well, in my opinion. If I were, you know, five years ago, I think I was saying Miz should go to the Performance Center and get all the Tully Blanchard tapes he can watch, including getting a female bodyguard because that would get him over too. But um, that's kind of what, what, Blanchard is doing here and this is a tape of the steamboat attack on him and and then the next week 
he comes out to interrupt or to watch Steamboat watch a match against Barry Orton, which is uh, which is Randy's uncle, I believe. I believe this is Barry O in the WWF, for those of you who are pure historians. And Blanchard attacks him here. Okay, great. We have the stage set. We've introduced Tully Blanchard into the mix. So we come back to an interview after commercial, and it's with Brian Adias. Brian Adias is terrible. Brian Adias is one of these college athletes that they think has great athletic potential, but has no charisma whatsoever. He's wiping his hands. He's nervous. He, you know, he, he can't really banter with Tully until he's trying to troll him into getting angry or be passive aggressive with him. And it's not really coming off too well, but there is one thing about this interview that it does. It introduces that he is going to be tagging with Wahoo McDaniel mainstay of the Carolinas, his mentor. And that Wahoo McDaniel is a mentor to him. Okay, great. What does that have to do with anything? It sets it up for later. Okay, now we go a complete off the rails to this Dick Slater fake title story with Ric Flair. We have another story here because 1984, we don't know what's going to be the Starcade program just yet, I think. So we're setting all these things in case in case any of these programs fall through and then we can refer back to it. That's why it's so discombobulated, but it's also at the same time so interesting. So Dick Slater has had a replica NWA title made. And Ricky Steamboat comes out and throws it in the trash can and and Slater gets angry. And then we're introduced in an interview segment with Bob Cottle and Wahoo McDaniel. Wahoo McDaniel is a badass. I will say that right here. Wahoo McDaniel is one of those guys who would be babyface or heel and would be the exact same character all the way through. Uh, another guy like that would be Dick Murdoch. You know, he's always Dick Murdoch. He's just playing up some of the tendencies here. But here he's a babyface right now. And he's a little nervous. You watch him in the interview. His eyes get a little shifty. He's trying to get his train of thought. And then he finally gets focused. And, and he starts starts talking about, you know, how he hasn't had a chance at the title, how he helped train Ric Flair. Ric Flair's gone by now. He's already had three segments, for God's sake. But, but, you know, there's a little subtle racism in here in, in calling himself the good Indian, the good chief. People get him a beer and say, you know what, good Indian as they pass by him. It's really kind of a cool little way to say racism without saying racism. And then this angers Flair. Because now he's taking this personally and we see a little bit of the nature boy here. Even though he's a baby face, he's a fiery baby face, and he's trying to get that out of Wahoo. But, but as they're starting to really get heated up, who should come in? Here comes Tully Blanchard, which is why we set him up as a character earlier in the show. And Tully, Tully's all about getting in Rick's face because he's been getting in Rick's face for a couple of weeks, kind of teasing things, but always kind of getting dressed down by the champ whenever Flair's around. But now... Now he's like, where's your tie, Flair? Where's this? And he grabs him and he starts tearing off the clothes. And everybody's kind of waiting to see what Wahoo does. But Tully beats up Ric Flair here, strips him down a little half naked, which we'd see later in Flair's career quite frequently. But here is kind of a rare occurrence. And they ask Wahoo what he thinks of this. And Wahoo could help, but he doesn't help. 
Why? Because he respects Tully Blanchard as television champ for putting up his belt against Wahoo when guys like Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat wouldn't. It's a very subtle heel turn, but here's the heel turn, kids. Here comes Wahoo McDaniel. He's no longer going to be people's mentor. He's no longer going to be the nice Indian. And then we just kind of get away from it for, for part of the part of the show, but not before Ric Flair comes out and really shows you some of what you'd see in the future Nature Boy uh, era of Jim Crockett. Yelling at, at Wahoo, and then when Wahoo gets angry, he gets focused, and the two are just yelling at each other, and in two weeks, they're going to throw down. And I'm, I'm all in, because Wahoo just chops the crap out of people. If you had a Wahoo McDaniel, if you were trying to explain Wahoo McDaniel's gimmick, sure, you'd say Native American, but you'd also just say ornery crank who chops people, because that is what Wahoo McDaniel would do. So we go, and we kind of go away from it for a bit, but we have a very important moment here in Jim Crockett Promotions history. Here's the debut on television of one Nikita Koloff, straight from Minnesota. Straight from, I believe, Eddie Sharkey. And he's here with Don Kernodal and Ivan Koloff, the NWA World Tag Team Champions. And Don Kernodal's trying to play a playboy, and he ain't pulling it off, unfortunately. Don Kernodal by now has become a Russian sympathizer. This is a little bit, a couple years after teaming with Sergeant Slaughter as his protege. He's kind of lost right now, to be honest with you. He's going to be kind of phased out in the coming coming uh, months mostly to be a jobber to the stars. This is really kind of his last big run, if I recall correctly, in terms of being a champion on top. I think he might get like the like the Carolinas belt or some like mid-card title somewhere down here, but really it's kind of the end. But this is just introducing, this is a teaser for Nikita. Now, Nikita doesn't know anything at this point in terms of wrestling. He is green as goose shit, as they say. But... His presence alone makes you take notice. It makes you go, oh, this guy's going to be bad. And he would. And it's stunning to think he comes here green. This is July 1984. December 1985, I believe, is when he is battling Ric Flair for the NWA title. Let me look that up while I stall a little bit. La, 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 la. Da, 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 da. Uh-huh. It's 1985, I am right. But, oh, man, he's fighting him at Starcade 86. I was wrong. Okay. That's my fault, then. I was a year off. I thought it was, like, like a year and a half, and he was main eventing Starcade, but I guess it's the next year. See, sometimes my history is off, kids. Anywho, big moment. And then, kind of a useless match next. Rufus R. Jones versus the Assassin with Paul Jones. Both Rufus R. Jones and the Assassin are way past their prime at this point. Paul Jones kind of getting your third-tier guys, depending on what you think of J.J. Dillon, because J.J. Dillon's stable ain't exactly a great bunch of talent. J.J. Dillon would get the guys like Ron Bass and Black Bart and Buddy Landell. Paul Jones would get the foreign guys who can't talk. He'd eventually get the Barbarian, the Warlord, Rick Rude, and Manny Fernandez would be his only champs in his stable. You get guys like T. Joe Kahn and Baron Von Raschke. Uh, Paul Jones, who passed away earlier, talked about him. Um, 
kind of a mainstay of the Mid-Atlantic area as a ba- young white meat baby face and then turned heel later and never really got that young white meat baby face heat back. And he regrets it. He regrets it on the NWA documentary uh, ever since. But basically this matches to set up a Dusty Rhodes injury angle, which would become a standard trope of the NWA, but right now it's an excuse as to why Dusty won't be here week to week or month to month or touring on the shows because he's going to be in Florida. So, the assassin and Paul Jones attack Rufus R. Jones. Dusty Rhodes comes in for the save. Out comes Kamala the Ugandan giant, who at this time was doing, you know, passing by from territory to territory. As a monster heel who would go up against a baby face, get crushed, and then leave and move on. Kind of like what Abdul the Butcher would be doing. Kind of like what a lot of guys would be doing at this time. Although Kamala would be used quite frequently by Crockett even because Magnum TA hadn't come into the territory yet. And that's really his first big feud in the NWA to get him over his Kamala in like 20 seconds. So Kamala, Paul Jones, and the Assassin all attack... Dusty Rhodes, they stretcher him out. Dusty's on a stretcher. Nice shot in the locker room of a very young and svelte, also in this promotion at the time, King Kong Bundy, um, in the background. But this is basically to cool him down (coughs) prior to heating him up and to give him something to do. Now, in modern parlance, you'd, you'd watch this and go, well, you're trying to make Dusty a star, aren't you, by putting him on there with flair? Why would you cool him down now? Well, you see, this is the dusty trope. You have him get beat up. You have him have a heinous injury. He comes in, cuts an angry baby face promo that's straight fire, gets people cheering, and then he beats him quick. You know, I, I, I love these shows because there's always a hot angle on them for the live crowd as opposed to the studios, which can feel a little stilted at times. I much prefer Mid-Atlantic and Worldwide to, to the 605. Then you get a kind of a... If you've never seen Adrian Street, this is an interesting promo because Adrian Street is a heel here in a feud with Jimmy Valiant and Pez Watley. And he's not giving a heel interview here, which is kind of interesting. I think I'm right on this. Adrian Street, British man, uh, wore a lot of makeup. Some would say kind of a trans gimmick at times, but it was mostly flamboyant to play up on the homophobia type stuff of wrestling audiences of the day. Really the guy they should have gotten to do this instead of Adrian Adonis in the WWF. And they probably wanted Adrian street at the time, but Adrian street kind of stayed in Crockett and then went to continental. And I think Memphis and never really went to the WWF. If I'm right, I might be wrong on that one too. So additions and, and uh, retractions department get to work on that. Then another group that was just kind of out of Crockett, the Freebirds are here, which is interesting because, my God, Michael Hayes always looked 40. And I think here he's like 24. <laughs> but he still looks about 30 here. Let me let me do the math here real quick. <laughs> I should have done this before the show, but I didn't. Uh, never mind. It's too too much to uh, 
too much to look up right now. But uh, 1984, Michael P.S. Hayes looks looks 33, 34. And the odd thing is, when he became Doc Hendricks in the WWF, I believe he was 37 years old. And that was like 80, what was it, 91, 92 when that happened? So, he, I mean, he had been, I mean, he started at 18, but he always looked in his mid-30s. And that's what guys would do for some reason in this time period. They always looked a little bit older than they really were, which is so weird to think about that you could be over the hill at 30 in wrestling these days. But in this match, it's Buddy Roberts and Michael Hayes against a couple of uh, mechanics, shall we say. And Buddy Roberts is... Look, he is the Xavier Woods. He is the Eric Young of this trio. He is the great wrestler who can be beat in a main event match. But they do show him off here. And you'll notice that in NXT and on SmackDown, they will occasionally showcase Xavier Woods. And they will occasionally showcase Eric Young as being very, very capable performers. And I think that's a good thing. I think Eric Young is one of the more versatile guys on the main roster. Now, the Freebirds did nothing in this match and still won. But, they, you know, they're here to be an act. They're here. Michael Hayes is here to shake his butt because he's still not a great ring technician at this point. Terry Gordy is young, too, even though they've been in wrestling, I think, you know, four or five years at this point, maybe a little bit less. But Buddy Roberts is here to uh, do the uh, majority of the work in in the match to do a majority of the technical stuff if you notice and and that was he was there to mentor the other two and it's it's weird how much he gets shaded because i mean even on i believe the wwe video games the freebirds were gordy garvin and hayes and look garvin is a freebird he was a couple of times but don't shade buddy man buddy was great loved him then we get wahoo back again for another interview Wahoo again, it's weird. You watch Wahoo McDaniel and he's such a steely veteran in the ring. But you put him on promos with a live mic, it takes him a few moments to get centered on, 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 his, on his want and he kind of stumbles a bit. And you can see his eyes kind of going back and forth. And then when he finally focuses, he has it. Watch it on this promo. It's, it's fascinating. And, and here's Wahoo being angry and... and and just shouting, he wants his title shot, et cetera, et cetera. And then we go into uh, Paul Jones and the Assassin to uh, to end us out here and, and talk about how happy they were and to kind of reiterate the Dusty Rhodes injury angle. So you had a lot on this show, not a lot of wrestling. not a, You didn't have a real main event like they do on most shows, but you had a lot of table setting and a lot of good table setting. And you saw just kind of how chaotic it was for the NWA at this point especially Jim Crockett Promotions, because they weren't sure who was going to be there and who wasn't, so they set up about 12 different angles at a time and hoped they'd be able to find something within there. So next week, uh, if I can get Brian O'Connell on, we're going to do an episode from 1985 because I have to talk to him about Manny Fernandez a bit. We're going to go over our story from... We're going to go over our uh, trip to Southgate to watch Rise Wrestling in a rather enjoyable way. By this time... Next week, Rise will have already done another show in Naperville. And you'll have the results for that if you follow it. But we'll talk a little women's wrestling, I think. And we'll do a preview of uh, Extreme Rules coming up. So uh, for me and me alone, this has been 
as I like to call it, Rob McCarron's Shake Them Ropes. We'll see you next week. In a world of one million wrestling podcasts, there is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.